0: Welcome to Non-Obvious with Hugh Hansen.
1: Yes, welcome everybody and welcome Brad. It's great to have you here. Uh, Brad and I go back a long way uh, early on um, and I've been impressed with him from the beginning. It's almost kind of sad how impressed I've been with him on a consistent basis. And he just does more good things every year. So I'm a little concerned that, are you, are you having any time for fun?
0: (laughs) Um, Every day is fun, Hugh, Uh, is in all seriousness, it really is. I mean, I thoroughly enjoy what I get to do, uh, both at work and at home. Uh, It's a busy pace, but I wouldn't trade it for anything.
1: Okay, great. Uh, Okay, let's start out a little bit with your, Uh, You know where you were born and all. So you're from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Yep. Uh, Your father was an engineer and manager with Wisconsin Bell. Your mom was an elementary school teacher. Now, uh, were you at all intrigued by the technology and stuff your father doing, or you were just a basic arts and uh, BA type person at a a Uh, job? I
0: think. You know, growing up, I was, you know, frankly, most interested in politics uh, and things like that. But I was exposed to technology. Uh, you know, my dad worked in the telephone industry. Um, I, because he worked for Wisconsin Bell, um, you know, he had a car phone, as it was called at the time, before, you know, those kinds of things were, uh, you know, even in the popular imagination. So I had some exposure. Uh, to that. But it was really when I got to college that I probably got more interested in technology.
1: All right. And your mother, was she at all interested in politics and policy? Uh... No, my mom
0: was really all about people. Um, and, you know, frankly, raising her kids to, to work hard, aim high, and do the right thing. Um, but my you know, my my mom who you know, passed away a few years ago uh, you know, never had an email address. Um, you know, my father did, and she relied on him to send the email, and he was she was happy to tell him what to say. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, she was, uh, but she she loved knowing what I was up to, and always had questions about that. But um, you know, my dad easily took on you know, the personal computer when it came out, and other things like that. But uh, but that was his thing, not my mom's.
1: All right. There's an interesting thing here. Your childhood hero was Bob Gibson of the St. Louis Cardinals. How did that happen? Um, yeah, he
0: absolutely was. Um, it was fascinating. When I was living, uh, you know, a, a, as a kid at the time in southeastern Wisconsin. There, were, there was a stretch where Milwaukee didn't have a professional baseball team. The Braves had left for Atlanta. The Brewers hadn't yet been uh, born or come from Seattle, uh, and my dad had grown up in uh, in Missouri, so it was easy to root for the Cardinals. I got interested in them, and Bob Gibson was the man. Okay. Um, but what really interested me in Bob Gibson was when he came out with an autobiography in 1969, I believe it was, and it was called From Ghetto to Glory, and it was about his growing up in uh, in Nebraska in Omaha. Uh, and Omaha, and. Yeah, he overcame a lot of challenges, uh, and uh, I, you know, when I look back on it, I find it more interesting than perhaps I thought at the time that here was this you know, very much a young, white, middle-class kid uh, who adopted uh, uh, you know, as his hero, uh, an African-American athlete, and, uh, and I always was so inspired by how he overcame just an enormous amount of prejudice and discrimination. Uh, to become one of the leaders in his field, and I always felt that if he could do that, then I could do anything because I my life was so much easier. I, yeah. I just didn't ha- I didn't have his ability, <laughs> but uh, but it put things in perspective, and I think yeah, as I, especially from the vantage point of the year 2020, um, I think it's not a bad perspective to have.
1: No, no, actually, we have some interesting things that we share as we go along. I will uh, my childhood, Haley, really, hero was Willie Mays, Uh uh, the the New York Giants, and then the San Francisco Giants. And uh, it was wonderful. It's wonderful to have a childhood hero, actually. Uh, uh, But there wasn't anything more than that. It was the sports and what he was doing and what was he was the person and the teams, but still. Um, Okay, so you went to... uh, You were president of the student faculty association, both the junior and senior year. That's That's, nice, yeah. Nobody has ever done that before. (laughs) Um, Yeah,
0: no, I went to a large public high school in Appleton, Wisconsin, Appleton West. we had in in those years, three grades, uh, sophomore, junior, senior, each had about 700 kids. And I had the gumption to run, uh, for student body president, uh, the spring of my sophomore year, meaning I would then serve my junior year. And, uh, I, I, ran against a junior. Uh, so he was a year ahead of me. And I, um, it was very, what I'll always remember is in the couple weeks running up to it, my parents never asked me how it was going. I think they thought that I didn't have a shot in the world of winning this thing. Uh, and, uh, and then, uh, lo and behold, I won. I still remember I got 61% of the vote. And I was uh, you know, down at the YMCA that evening, and I finally got home about 8 o'clock, and uh, it had been on the election day. And, and uh, they said, well, what happened? And I said, I won. And uh, they were you know, very happy for me. And they said, you didn't call or tell us anything. And I sort of said, well, I, I didn't think you were that interested in it. And uh, I think they were doing their best just to downplay expectations.
1: Okay. Uh, And then you were, second year, you also were the uh, president of the Student uh, Faculty Association, uh, which, as I said, is pretty unusual. Uh, I'm beginning to think your whole life was unusual. Uh, You were also co-editor-in-chief of the school newspaper at the same time.
0: Yeah. Um, Thankfully, nobody objected on the basis of conflict of interest. But yeah, my senior year, I was the student body president. You already
1: were able to do a million things besides your main task of going to school. So early on, you were able to multitask uh, and do it very well. Now, this is interesting. You're the props man uh, for the Little Abner play in which you had to wrangle a piglet every night. Tell us about that.
0: That was actually great fun. Yeah, I I had
1: a little bit of an interest in school theater, but I had
0: absolutely no acting ability whatsoever. Um, I did uh, play a part in one play my senior year and mostly I concluded that the only person I could ever play was myself. But I then went on, uh, I had to play a role as the props manager for Little Abner which was a lot of fun, just because it was a great way to be in, in a big play. It was a big production uh, for our school. And uh, yes, it, it, I had to go find a piglet from a local farmer uh, so that uh, the piglet could be uh, in the play. And it was uh, my job each day to uh, drive out after school uh, as the play uh, ran to pick up the piglet uh, and, and and brought him in uh, and then returned to him after the play ended each night.
1: You know, I have a feeling that the piglet was probably had a month of depression after the play ended. <laughs> where is Brad? Where is Brad? Mom, where is Brad? <laughs> anyway, uh, so, okay. Uh, you went from high school to Princeton. Summa cum laude, which is, uh, I understand, pretty good. Uh, your senior thesis, The Politics of Refugees, the Development and Promotion of International Refugee Law. Now, I would imagine there weren't that many uh, senior theses on that topic.
0: No, but you know, it was something I was very interested in. And it's something that gave me a huge opportunity and a sort of shaped interest I've had ever since. And yeah, you know, I actually think that um, my interest came out of something I had first happened upon growing up um when i was in you know what you call middle school i t- today in southeastern wisconsin there were uh there there was an area nearby that had migrant farm workers uh every summer and i actually uh you know on you know, a couple of occasions went over and you know, for, or earned some odd money by you know literally being on my hands and knees and picking onions next to the, the these kids who are migrant workers and they showed me around their living Quarters and I saw their living conditions. And it got me very interested in, you know, what were the standards for, for migrants? Um, it was an issue that I had pursued in, in high school, learned more about, and then when I got to college, I was very interested in uh, refugee issues. Um, so uh, we all at Princeton had to do a senior thesis. It was sort of the, uh, the pinnacle, uh, uh, if you will, and it was like, you know, 100 page plus research paper. Uh, and I applied for a scholarship that I got which gave, gave me the opportunity to uh, you know, to, to fly to uh, to Geneva Switzerland and interview the people who worked at the UN High Commission for Refugees. It was um, you know my first trip to, to Europe I had never had that opportunity uh, and um, I just loved it uh, I loved the opportunity to work on the issue and and came away with uh, you know, a passion for you know the needs of refugees that I've pursued ever ever since, including in pro bono work uh, and work that I continue to do today.
1: So oh, there, there's some truth to uh, the child is father of the man. Uh, early influences, yeah. Uh, yeah, great. And so somewhere in there, uh, you met Kathy, your wife. Yep. Um, and you've been together since college, I guess, right?
0: yeah as I always say, we were in the same class, and i I started dating her our sophomore year, and she finally started dating me our junior year <laughs> uh, and uh yes oh and and we you know she she did her senior thesis on another aspect of the United Nations and the u n of the rights of women so um you know, we, we had you know similar interests uh which was really nice
1: that's great uh, and then you you went to Geneva for two, a year
0: yeah, basically what uh, we did is uh, both Kathy and I got into Columbia Law School, um, you know, at that point, we were both going uh, we to go wherever was the right place for each of us individually and happily it ended up being the same place. And uh, we got married after our second year of law school and spent uh, a year off before going back and finishing. And we spent that year studying at the Graduate Institute of International Studies in Geneva. We studied international law and uh, international economics.
1: And to what extent, uh, was this more of an academic experience or was it tied into the real world or, uh, and did it have any influence on you, what you can do now?
0: Well, I mean, first of all, it was an academic experience. We had a friend who had gone before who we knew and had recommended it. Uh, and uh, yeah, so it was very much an academic experience. The, the Graduate Institute is now quite a large uh, institution. When we were there, it was small. Uh, and uh, yeah, we, we, we moved ourselves over to, to Geneva. Um, yeah, didn't have a whole lot of money, but enough to get by. Um, we each bought these little uh, mopeds, two, two red mopeds. Um, people would always joke that they would know that where we were with our mopeds were parked outside the library. Uh, and, and we both love the experience. We love the students that we got to meet. Uh, we, uh, you know, loved the opportunity we had to travel during the, the holiday seasons over there. And, uh, I'll, we, we would study both at the, uh, Institute, but also at the, uh, the library for the United Nations, uh, the Palais de Nations, the UN headquarters in Geneva, I will always remember um, sort of chugging up the hill on my moped in the middle of a snowstorm because I was from Wisconsin. It never occurred to me that I would stay home just because it was snowing. Uh, and, uh, you know, had my pass and got up to the library and there was the uh, UN police officer uh, looking at me and ch- chuckling and uh, I said hello and he goes, you must be American." Uh, And I said, yes, I am, and, uh, you know, we we got a huge amount out of the experience, and it gave me, among other things, this enormous appreciation for the role of multilateralism, the history of uh, the international institutions in Geneva, uh, you know, the opportunities to, that I thought the world had to do more things, uh, if it could find a way to do them more collaboratively and together, and, you know, that's another thing I've, I think I've carried with me ever since.
1: This is getting a little uh, interesting because I actually spent time in Geneva because my aunt worked in the UN, and I'd go over and visit. And I was enthralled then with the UN and what it could do and everything else. Uh, I'm a little disappointed. It seems to have gone less of a player, and uh, I guess that's to be expected at some time. But I thought it was uh, great people and a great experience, and I love Geneva also. Um, Okay. You graduate from Columbia. Uh, you clerk for Judge Metzner. How it, I happen to know Judge Metzner because I clerked for Judge Wyatt and Judge Gerfine. and he was a friend, a big friend of Judge Wyatt. Uh, I thought. And how uh, did how did that that year be?
0: I really enjoyed my year clerking. It you know it was in the Southern District of New York. It was a district clerkship, and as you know, uh, you know there was this. Generation of federal judges in New York. I think they were uh, great judges. Um, they were tough on the lawyers in front of them. Uh, you know, it's uh, you know, Judge Metzner uh, was a wonderful person, and uh, you know, he really taught me so much about how to think and write uh, uh, like a lawyer. Um, I realized that the first week when you know I produced something and. He was less than enthused about what I had uh, written. Uh, and so, you know, he instilled in me very quickly, uh, you know, the kind of self-discipline that I think, uh, frankly, is is needed to just think through things in a rigorous way. Um, I, I learned a lot uh, in part about technology in that context. I brought a PC into the chambers, uh, you know, something that was new. Uh, so, you know, he had a filing system that literally had served him well for three decades. So I had to figure out where I could use my PC and where my PC wasn't welcome because things already worked uh, extremely well, but I figured that one out. And, and I will always remember uh, Judge Metzner, um, you know, as some of the other judges at that time, if, uh, yeah, if a lawyer was disagreeing with them in their courtroom, the judge sort of Told, told the lawyer you know, <laughs> how they had it wrong. Uh, <laughs> Judge Metzner had sometimes a little bit of a tendency. of, uh, you know, If he explained to the lawyer what the lawyer was doing wrong and the lawyer still objected, then, then, then Judge Metzner said the same thing again, only louder. Uh, and uh, as I once said to him when we took a break, I said, <laughs> Judge, it's not because he can't hear you. <laughs> it's because he's not prepared to agree. Um, but, you know, it was a, this awesome experience in terms of learning about how, you know, a real court works with real cases.
1: All right. So then you join uh, Covington and Burling, of course, a fantastic firm uh, in D.C. Uh, so they were in New York and D.C. at the time, right? No, they were only in D.C. Oh, okay.
0: uh, this was before they were in New York. They were really just a, uh, in one office at that time when I joined them in D.C.
1: And how was that experience?
0: It was great. I mean, I, went, I wanted to go to DC because I had gotten so interested in um, you know, broader public issues, public policy, regulatory issues. Yeah, a lot of this was really, frankly, the influence of what we had been exposed to in Geneva. Uh, and I love the fact that the firm then, uh, as now, uh, it made it possible for you to do more than one thing at a time. Uh, you know, So I did litigation, I did antitrust and other litigation, um, but I also had the chance to work on a variety of other issues with other lawyers and other practice groups. Uh, and the most important thing I got, frankly, was what I think is the most important thing any lawyer can get right out of uh, law school, which is fantastic training. Um, and I am forever grateful for the Uh, The partners I had the chance to work with, uh, one in particular, a a great litigator named Bill Iverson, um, you know, would take what I wrote and mark it all up, um, print it out, and he would just edit it with a red pen. But then he would come, I would always remember, he would walk up to my office, sit, pull up a chair next to me, and go through every edit and explain why he made it. Uh, and it was just like you know it was great for him it was great for me because I was less likely to make the same mistake twice if uh, somebody actually walked me through uh what I had done and how I could do it better um and uh I I worked my tail off but um it, it was a lot of fun and I learned one heck of a lot
1: how did you like D.C.
0: I loved it um I've always enjoyed being in D.C. Uh, and it was a great place to work. Uh, you know, Kathy and I really enjoyed living there. Uh, you know, we were there for, for three years, um, and I've always enjoyed going back.
1: Where did you live in D.C.?
0: Uh, we lived up near American University in what's, in, you know, what's called AU Park, American University Park, and you know, uh, it was our first house, and it was a uh, Uh, You know, a a very, uh, you know, know, middle-income, comfortable, nice uh, neighborhood. And and yet it was close to the, uh, you know, the metro. It was close to uh, downtown by car.
1: Okay. Then you go with Covington, Burling, go to London. What what caused that?
0: Well, it was really the uh, Geneva um, background, if you will. Um, It gave Kathy and me both this long-standing interest of going back to Europe if the opportunity ever arose. Um, She was at Gibson Dunn, uh, Gibson Dunn and Crutcher. They had a London office. Uh, Covington had just opened one. It was their first office outside of D.C. Uh, And so I expressed an interest in in going there uh, and uh, going from this very much establishment firm in D.C. to this classic startup of an enterprise. I was lawyer number three, I, uh, instead of lawyer number two hundred and fifty, uh, in the office, um, and I was just so so uh, fortunate, Hugh, in the in the sense that I, uh, I ended up with this wonderful opportunity to start doing work for the software industry. Oh, so this was this.
1: London office directly connected to working uh, what software as, publishers or whatever. What it, was it? As
0: as it turned out, and yeah, you know, I was lucky, and I and I think you know in hindsight you could say I also helped make my own luck. Um, and it's a story that I often share with people who are in law school or early in their career. Um, I had a, a a mentor, a partner, a fellow named Jim Atwood, who was a partner at Covington. Talk about you know, what a great job as a mentor. He walked into my office uh, in uh, February of 1989, and he said, you know, you're going to the London office, and I just got this intellectual property bulletin. And it said that the European Commission is considering this software copyright directive. And uh, he said, (laughs) you know, maybe you want to write a memo for business development purposes, because I know you like computers. I had a reputation for liking computers, using them. Uh, this might be something you want to learn about. I said, hey, that sounds good. And it was uh, it was a Friday morning, first thing in the morning, uh, uh, before President's Day weekend. Um, and so I walked down to the eighth floor where there was a person who had just left Covington, a guy named Doug Phillips, who was the first head of what was called at the time the Business Software Alliance. It had the six software publishers. It had Microsoft, Lotus, WordPerfect, uh, Aldous, Adobe. Uh, and I walked into his office, and I said, hey, there's this newsletter. It says that there's this uh, proposal coming out of Europe. Uh, Do you happen to have it? And he said, yes, I do. And he had it printed out, and he said, here, you can take a copy. And I said, hey, Jim Atwood suggested that maybe I should write a a memo for business development purposes. And and Doug said, hey, if you want to do a memo uh, for me, I'll circulate it to the software companies. I said, deal. You know, it wasn't going to get paid for it. I said, I'd be happy to do it. And then he said to me, there's only one catch. I said, what's that? He goes, I need it by Tuesday morning. Uh, I said, okay. Well, I sort of gulped because this was now at about 10 o'clock in the morning and Kathy and I were scheduled to take a 1 p.m. flight down to Florida for President's Day weekend. Uh, uh, So I said, okay, I'll do it um and what you have to know is i never took any intellectual property class in law school i didn't know the first thing about like you know i I sort of knew what a copyright was because i'd read books but that was about the extent of it i walked up to the covington uh, law library pulled out these two big uh, litigation bags filled it up with treatises uh on copyright law uh checked out a very heavy laptop because that's all you had at the time. So I could do some work. Um, Met Kathy at the airport. We flew down to Florida. Uh, On on Saturday, I spent the whole day next to a pool reading all of this stuff. (laughs) On Sunday, we went to Disney World. (laughs) On Monday, I just sat, got up early and spent the whole day writing uh, a memo. Yeah, you know, with recommendations for the software industry about what the changes it should you know, either endorse or seek uh, in this proposed copyright directive. We flew out back Monday night, Tuesday morning. I handed in the 10-page memo uh, and Doug Phillips sent it off to the software companies. And thank goodness, at least one person read it. And the person who read it was uh, at the time the chief international counsel at Microsoft. And he picked up the phone and called Doug, and he said, this memo is really good. We ought to give this guy some additional work and see what he can do. And that was my introduction to the software industry.
1: That's great. The rest is history. And poor Kathy's been, been putting up with this, taking work on every vacation probably. Uh, but... <laughs> Uh, I, I, I may not give her the link to
0: this podcast, Hugh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> but uh, okay, so, and the reason, you know, I'm just telling our audience, Brad is not going to discuss this, but one of the most important things in his life happened as a result of this move to, to London and doing s- software, because uh, the commission was doing uh, hearings on, I forget actually what the issue was, maybe moral rights or something. But um, and I was an academic and I was hanging around when I went there uh, and they let me, but they couldn't let me in there because you had to be already authorized as a player corporation or something. Um, so they called up Brad and said, look, we got this academic from uh, New York uh, we can't let him in, but you have two seats. You're only going to take one. Uh, is it okay if he just sits there and doesn't say anything? Um, uh, yep. which is what I do the best. And, uh, yeah. And so that was good. And that's, we met and, uh, uh very happy to say we had, uh, lots of things to do together over the years.
0: Yeah. I remember that meeting actually, like it was yesterday. Because uh, you're absolutely right. It was in a big conference room in Brussels in the European Commission, and I had a spare seat because I was there to represent the BSA and speak for the u s software industry, and uh, that's where we met. Yeah
1: excellent. Um, okay, now, I think it's we're getting close to the time where we actually have to get more substantive um, now. You're doing IP uh, for, because you're such in demand, you've abandoned IP now. Uh, do you miss it? Um, you know, I get to stay connected
0: uh, to intellectual property issues today through our IP team, and I'm able to follow the issues from afar. Um, you know, I it's... I, I like the fact that I get to stay abreast of where it is today and what some of the issues are, at least those that affect the company like Microsoft the most, um, but you're right. I mean, you know, in an you know, era of specialization, and I think that's the era in which we live, you know, I spent my first several years working in the legal field for this, for Microsoft, for other software companies, you know, with a, a, a real specialization around IP and, um, you know, I I don't have that level of depth anymore, but I I don't think I miss it for the simple reason that I feel like I've got other people that I know are so capable in addressing it. Um, we have a person Jennifer Yokoyama who leads our intellectual property group today, and you know, if there's ever a question to which I don't have the answer, I know where to get it, and I get it right away. And then I have the opportunity to weave that together with lots of other things that are going on. And that's sort of my job in so many ways is to weave lots of different strands from different fields together, rather than be the person that goes really deep on any one of them in particular.
1: May I ask, uh, in terms of IP or the practice of law, uh, to what extent today, as opposed to when you started out, or uh, even when we're in London, has that changed or is it pretty much the same?
0: You know, I feel like I'm a really bad person to ask because, um, yeah, I know what it was like to be a a junior lawyer three decades ago. And I know what it's like to have a job like mine today. I don't actually know what it's like to be a junior lawyer starting out today. Um, You know, I I always love talking to people and I do get a glimpse of it. Um, My son is a third year law student at Columbia today. Um, so I listened to him. Um, and I, I think that yeah, the most important thing that I would say that I think was true for me and is true for anyone today is you you really need to just find a way to take advantage of every opportunity that comes your way. Um you know, I did some projects my first year, or two at Covington that by any, broad perspective you look at and say wow that was like really boring Um, i mean literally one of my first projects was to sit in a file room in washington dc and use a tape recorder to record a summary of 110,000 pages of documents you know something that computers basically do today Um, but i figured out how to make it fun i I was my goal to make it fun figure out you know how to do it i was like well if i'm going to do this thing you know, I'm going to figure out how to do it better than anybody ever has done this before. And I just sort of made that my goal. Um, and I learned from it. And, uh, and because I did it, you know, reasonably well or better, you know, somebody said, hey, we're going to give you a bigger project. Um, and I just think that's probably the nature of every profession in every era. You're never going to do your mo- most exciting work your first year out of school that's a good thing. Otherwise, life is going to peak awfully early. You have to pay your dues at some level, and you have to find a way to do it well, learn everything you can, and make it fun. Um, And so I I think a lot of specifics have changed for people starting out in in the law today, but I suspect that has not.
1: All right. In terms of the role of IP, uh, the people who are in it, Uh, It used to be that the IP people were in the office without a window uh, and all the action was going on. And then, of course, IP products could be sold and globalization, and that changed everything. And then it became very important just from a financial standpoint. Um, But do you need – how much do you have to know about the real deep Uh, IP to, to be able to participate in, in a way that can make a difference. I mean, is it basically now another type of business and that's it, and those things will determine what you do? Or is it basically a bunch of stuff that most people don't know anything about and never will know anything about and it's off by itself?
0: Well, I think it's almost all of the above. Um, you know, I first think that if you work in the tech sector, uh, and especially if you're a lawyer in the tech sector, it's really important to have some background in intellectual property. Uh, because it, you know, it, it is ultimately, in many ways, the intellectual property laws and rights that define uh, the value of the products we create. Um, I always think it's interesting to think about IP as not one thing, but really four. It's copyright, it's, it, it's patents, it's trademark, and it's trade secrets. And you know, for uh, software, uh, those four different fields serve very different purposes. Um, you know, from my perspective, copyright plays a fundamental role in making sure that somebody can't get a hold of your source code and just create a wholesale copy uh, of what you're doing patent law plays uh, an important role in protecting and ultimately licensing in different ways, some of the fundamental inventions uh, that give a product value. Uh, Trademark is really what we use, uh, interestingly enough today, not just to fight against counterfeits, which we've been fighting forever, but actually it serves a role in even uh, helping us uh, protect cybersecurity in ways that are not entirely intuitive or obvious, but are, are fundamental. And, and, and trade secrets more and more uh, are, are quite important, especially in an era of cloud computing, when you may have uh, you know, inventions or code that uh, may not always qualify for patent protection, but you, know, you, you do need to keep it in some instances secret They're in your data centers. So all four of them come together. And you know, what that really means is, at one level, you have specialists in each of the four areas. They need to go deep. It's of vital importance that we have just you know, world-class lawyers at a company like Microsoft in each of these four fields. Then you have, need to have people who understand how the four fields fit together with each other. And then, fundamentally, you need people uh, like, that do what I do today, which is ask, um, from an even higher altitude, Yeah, how are the intellectual property issues going to intersect with the antitrust issues or the cybersecurity issues, or a lot of other broader issues that we're working to uh, address?
1: Uh, uh, Oracle v. Google. Uh, By the way, that's a case, I don't know if you've heard of that case, but uh, a lot of people think it could be one of the most important cases in copyright in a long time, depending on which way they go. Uh, Do you have any views on that case? Or I? Yeah, no,
0: we've uh, we've uh, uh, authored an amicus brief. We've sided with Google in the case, Um, although we've You know,
1: know, uh, let me just say that if there is a God. You'll be punished for that, Okay. Uh,
0: (laughs) No, I mean, I I think that we offered an argument for the court um that you know some might regard as less far-reaching than some of the arguments made by others in the case perhaps even uh, google itself in some yeah i
1: agree with that um you know
0: but i do think that ultimately in copyright especially there you know there has been around since the 1980s um you know how far copyright should go beyond in protecting things beyond the the literal copying of of source code and, and especially you know, things like software interfaces, you know, this was, you know, at the heart of the work that I did when I first arrived in, in London uh, and then made all these trips to, to Brussels. It's always required a balance. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm hopeful that the Supreme Court will decide uh, the case in Google's favor, but with the recognition of the balance uh, that, that is needed.
1: Uh, well, we should be known pretty soon. Uh, of course, you're not going to predict publicly because you you don't want to be in the losing side of a public. Uh, uh, I actually think, I didn't know what the Supreme Court was going to do. And I, I, uh, uh, my guess is they're going to say it's copyrightable. And the only issue is what they do if they do anything with fair use, but but we'll see. Um, and uh, it, to some extent, and I always thought that you and Microsoft and, and this showed it too, but the tech people are almost in their own world, uh, um, of which they have their own rules. It's not like choreographers are in their world, music industries in their world, and the culture creates things that people do that may or may not comply with the law, because it doesn't, because everyone wants to do that. Uh, And it's only when you have a lawsuit, and this can happen in music or something else, you bring in an outsider or an estate or something, that all of a sudden things are maybe shaken up a little bit or maybe not. Um, And the, I have to say, I think of the, Hardcore tech, startups and all, are definitely and it's wonderful to create all this stuff, but the actual development of the law is less important than actually what the technology can do or not, and uh, I think when I I became interested in IP in my generation, became interested in IP because we were creative wannabes. I wanted to be a novelist, other people wanted to be a singer or something like that. Now, the people, my colleagues in IP who teach, they come to it because from the tech side, and they see IP as the problem, the the ghost in the machine. And rather than yes, IP is very important, everything else is maybe we'll put up with IP, but. Uh, you know, the culture of the public domain a little bit. But we're all, to some extent, uh, doing things that flow naturally from us. Um, So we'll see. I mean, that's why I think this case is very important, because my generation is dying out. The tech people, you know, they're all ridiculously young and everything else. So this case could be incredibly important, depending on what the Supreme Court does. Anyway, we'll see what they do. Uh, and, you know, when you in your second podcast, we can discuss it. Uh, okay. Uh, tools and weapons. I, I love the title. Um, the Promise and the Peril of Digital Age uh, with Caroline Brown as uh, your co-author. I think, you know, and I don't actually read a lot of books, like maybe my articles and other things uh posts and uh but it it's almost sounds trite or something else, but I really couldn't put this book down. I thought it was fantastic. Okay. Uh, and I actually give it to my students. uh I used to just bring in a box full of these things. But now I say, if you want it, I'll uh, tell it. Give me your email, and we'll get you get sent to it. And so it's gone down a bit. But you know, I think there are at least ten people who have received the book. Uh, And by the way, uh, at the end of this thing, I'm going to give you a bill. Uh, (laughs) But uh, so I think I think it's incredible, and it's incredibly insightful. So what what actually caused you to do this book?
0: Well, uh, Carolyn Brown, who who you mentioned, is now my chief of staff and manages all my uh, communications. And we've worked together on a variety of things over the last several years. And if there's a thread that runs throughout it, it has often been trying to convey to a broader audience uh, the issues and the concerns that we're trying to address. And yeah, we live at a time where we feel that digital technology really has become, uh, on the one hand, the most powerful tool for addressing almost any issue or problem in the world. And at the same time, it really has become perhaps the world's most formidable weapon uh, in in so many ways, either literally as a weapon in the in the cyber uh, attack. context or just a a cause of increasing societal divides uh, in so many ways. And we wrote the book in part because we wanted to make all of these issues more accessible and we hope more interesting to people. We wanted to give people the ability to think about the issues of today through the lens of sort of history and other experiences and inventions uh, that give us in our view insights that can be applied and And we wrote the book for two other reasons. We really wanted to make the case that the tech sector needs to step up and assume more responsibility. We felt that governments need to move faster. They need to speed up. We need a world where there are more laws to to address the issues that technology is creating.
1: All right, and what is uh, The last chapter sort of goes through it, and uh probably you're saying you could go either way.
0: Well, I th- yeah, people often ask, uh, ask us, are we optimistic or pessimistic about the future? And uh, yeah, I, I always like to say we're determined. Uh, at the end of the day, I don't think it actually matters whether you're optimistic or pessimistic nearly as much as whether you're determined to make a difference. Uh, And I think if people of goodwill and real thoughtfulness are determined to come together, work together, and have a positive impact, then everybody can get optimistic. Uh, But uh, optimism without determination usually leads to good feeling, but no real change in the world.
1: How important is it, as you have, to be able to speak to a government leader about these issues? Uh, Most of us can't. And uh, I mean, what... What can the the general public do, or is it just really leaders have to get their act together?
0: No, I think it's all of us, actually. I mean, we all have a vote. We all have a voice. We all get to learn more and share our views. Um, In in a way, Hugh, I think it's an interesting uh, almost set of bookends. I mean, if I go back to the time when you and I first met each other, technology issues were not mainstream issues they were almost completely confined to intellectual property. Privacy as a field wasn't even born at that time. Uh, And uh, it it was, as you put it, the people who got the offices without windows. uh, You you would never imagine that the issues that we were listening to in that conference room in Brussels would ever be on the agenda of a prime minister or a head of state, Uh, And, here we are today, 30 years later, and these in so many ways are the uh, leading issues of our time. They impact everybody. They impact every aspect of society, not just obviously IP, but you know, access to broadband, the skills that people need to get jobs, the protection of cybersecurity, privacy, the role of social media. I mean, these are among uh, the issues that shape everyone's uh, community. So I do think that it's important for people to learn about them and, and formulate an opinion. That's part of why we wrote the book. But the other reason we wrote the book was to reach leaders, uh, whether it be leaders in business or leaders in government. Um, yeah, I, one of my uh, you know moments when I smiled this past year was, uh, not just when we gave a copy of the book to Jacinda Ardern, the prime minister of New Zealand, but when I then saw a photograph of uh, her in her office, and there was our book on her bookshelf. Uh, you know, so you know, we 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 do need to use our voice as leaders. I think hopefully thoughtful leaders who are thinking about more than just our self-interest, but broadly about what the, will serve the public, uh, if we're going to address these issues well.
1: All right, I see you as someone who could have ended up as one of these leaders. Uh, and I think it would have been fantastic. Is it ever cross your mind now that somehow you want to get involved in government, whether electoral or others or, or something or? Well,
0: mostly I would say I love doing what I am doing now and I love where I am doing it. And that's what I want to keep doing. Um, yeah, I, I just think the opportunity to be a part of the creation of the technology and to bring into the technology creation process um, you know, these values, these perspectives, the liberal arts, if you will. I think that the world of technology, um, you know, benefits from having people who uh, yeah have these experiences. And I'm obviously not alone. I mean, there's lots of people across the tech sector today who are playing very important roles. And I think that it's that the tech sector benefits from having people who can go take this message to governments and work with governments um, in a broad-minded way. And I just get to take so much initiative. Um, you know, one of the several things that we've done this past year is, is create what no company has uh, had before, um, a, a, a United Nations Affairs office. So you know, we have one of our senior leaders, you know him, John Frank, who's now the head of our UN Affairs team. He's based in New York. Um, You know, we have someone else who you may know is a longstanding person in our Brussels office. He's now our person in Geneva, Jean-Yves Art. And, you know, the the ability to blaze some new trails and think about how, uh, you know, the tech sector can better serve the UN, better be a voice for multilateralism. um, You know, try to take concrete steps to put technology to work to address some of these needs. Um, You know, it's a it's a wonderful opportunity to, to get to get up every morning and work on these things. So I, I'm really in a position where I'm like, I get to multitask, as you say, I get to work on lots of different things with, with people I love working with. Um, so for me, I, I really wouldn't want to be anywhere.
1: Yeah, I actually don't want you to go anywhere. I think your impact uh, nationally and globally is, is really kind of incredible. And I'm very happy that you're the person doing that so uh, and i'm glad at some point you probably crossed your mind whether you'd run for office or something or somewhere in this long history i imagine uh, oh
0: yeah but i'll just say if that was the right thing to do i should have done it a decade or oh two. no no
1: no i agree with you totally yeah yeah um okay um uh, ai uh scares a lot of people it scares me um you know, as your book says, most people are saying, well, we just wanted to augment. But this is Chinese company who's very frank about saying, well, we never even want to have a human. Uh, we're just all robots or whatever. Uh, wh- what is the future with AI? Is it, is it ultimately grim or is it ultimately can be managed?
0: Well, I would say it's like almost everything else in life, the future will be what we make it. Um, I think uh, you know AI is gonna to continue to get better. It's gonna become a more powerful tool. It's gonna to be able to do more things. And I'm willing to bet that it will help us find a cure for cancer. It will play a profound role in enabling us to reduce the amount of carbon that's emitted in the atmosphere. Um, you know, we're already seeing machine learning play just enormously important roles in addressing issues like that. And at the same time, it can create more powerful weapons for the militaries of the world. If it's not regulated and managed well, it can even take humans out of the loop. Uh, you know, so yeah, it really requires that we pay enormous attention to getting this right. Um, you know, I sometimes say, and I've had the chance to, you know, as you know, do this around the world, not just with government leaders, but you know, at the Vatican and the like, um, you know, we are the first generation in the history of humanity to give machines the ability to make decisions that have always been made only by human beings. And if we fail to get this right, we run the risk that every generation that follows in our footsteps will pay the price for our mistakes. So we better do everything we can uh, to get it right. Um, so the stakes are, you know, in some ways couldn't be higher. Um, but I do believe we see emerging around the world, not just in the world of technology, but you know, in the world of philosophy and 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 religion and law and the like, you know, ethical principles and a lot of what a tech company like microsoft has to do is operationalize these principles so that ai is developed in an ethical way and then we what we really need to do is work with our customers around the world because they are the ones who will deploy this they are the ones who ultimately will decide how it is used in specific scenarios so it's not enough for just tech companies to get it right we have to take what we're learning we have to transfer that learning to everybody else and we need to be advocates um, you know, for self-restraint and self-responsibility, uh, as well as for the kinds of laws that will ensure that bad actors uh, are limited in the harm that they can wreak.
1: Right, right. Uh, all right, let me ask you a specific thing about the, about the legal profession. Uh, I'm a legal realist, uh, and I came out believing in facts plus law equals result, thinking it was great because no one is above law, no one's beneath the law, it's up to the legislatures to change and everyone can act accordingly. Uh, but then, you know, my clerkship with Judge White, he gave me some, look at this case, come back, and he said, uh, Hugh, Jones is the good guy, right? And I'm saying to myself, it doesn't matter if he's the good guy. I didn't say this out loud or anything else. It's something else. And the other time he said something, Hugh, if you learn the facts, if you're in charge of the facts, the law will take care of itself. I said, I just spent three years learning the law. What do you mean it'll take care of itself? So he, and he was considered a law judge. Now, what he's saying is, he's policy oriented. Good guy is one of the policies the various policies. And he wanted to do justice. And so the judges, you know, nowadays, everyone says that's the law. I think actually what they're doing is saying, I want justice in this particular, I didn't a fifth-year associate makes more than chief justice United States. I didn't come here to make money, I didn't come here for fame and fortune. Nobody knows me except my mother's friends and and the lawyers who appear before me. Um, and it and it. Uh, so I am here actually to do good. So now, assuming I'm right on that to some extent, AI. AI can do facts plus law equals law very well, but this very intricate looking at all the parts of the puzzle, you know, uh, to produce a result, which what's I'm talking about federal judges now do, right. I think do very well. Is AI gonna be do gonna be able to do that easily, or or is that what more... you know? I think we've seen
0: computing automate a number of legal processes for several decades. You know, it started with what secretaries did, and then it sort of moved up to what paralegals did. And, you know, today it is at the cusp of doing to a certain degree what some lawyers do. Um, and I think it'll play a bigger role in the future than in the past. But I'll still say there are the creative leaps that are the difference between a good lawyer and a great one. And a good judge, and a great one. And I don't know that I would necessarily endorse as much as you, uh, the legal realism school. Uh, although I, I definitely know where where you're coming from, and I understand it. Um, but when I put my shoes in, what it means to be a lawyer, I think that sometimes it it you know when I think of some of the cases I've had the chance to work on over the years, it was the opportunity to look at a set of facts from a different vantage point and develop an argument that, you know, ask judges to innovate with the law, not because it was just the right outcome, but because it was the right outcome and it was consistent with longstanding principles. If you could just find the path to do that, that I think you could serve your client well and I think you could serve society well at the same time. So uh, and I don't think we're going to find artificial intelligence in our lifetimes, including say people who are students in law schools today, where machines will be able to make those leaps. Um, I, I what I hope and what I aspire to is that uh you know, machine learning will take off the shoulders of lawyers the work that is the least interesting and the least creative while leaving to lawyers the opportunity to frankly find careers that are even more fulfilling than otherwise.
1: Yeah, I, well, that's fantastic. And that's how I like to think of it. Um, all right, final area now, the digital divide. Um, so there's the, a the bunch of, you know, there's a sophisticated divide, you know, there's the techie Non techie, and everyone is sort of thinking, being able to think things. And then you have economic divides that people, well, it's in your book, uh, that people uh, can't get broadband. Uh, so, uh, to what extent do you see a future that the economic or educational or other inequalities uh, can be addressed and helped? Through um, advances in technology or whatever?
0: Well, I, I think it's just essential that we do just that. Um, you know, we live in a country today that takes for granted that uh, you know, everyone has electricity. And with the exception of, you know, literally a very small number of people, uh, you know, sadly, still some Native Americans on one or two uh, you know, locations, and the whole country has electricity. Uh, we need a future where the whole country has broadband Um, because broadband as we like to say is the electricity of the 21st century it is what we need to take us forward and give everybody access to the world i mean it is the world that you access now through broadband i think we need to uh, strengthen our public education systems in this country and innovate in those spaces so that everyone has access to the skills that are needed uh for jobs that increasingly have digital content regardless of what kind of job it is and i think if we uh close the broadband gap and eliminate the skills gap we create a stronger foundation that will help us address the other divides that we worry about the racial divides the economic divides the income inequality divides it won't do that by themselves But I don't think we can possibly succeed in these other areas if we leave the broadband and skilling divides where they are today. Um, So in that sense, I think it's of fundamental importance.
1: Yeah, Uh, I guess one add-on to this, democracy um, is, would Hitler have been even more dominant with this technology, or would the technology have been ways to maybe stop him? Uh, Or, you know, the modern day Hitler would of course Trump, Uh, but uh, that's just a joke, everybody. Uh, So uh, what about uh, really a serious thing? I mean, breaking into and changing votes or whatever we're worried about. So technology and democracy, is the answer the same? We all just have to be vigilant and... uh, what's right? Or what?
0: Well, I I think in some ways, it's the same. It's always been. and In other ways, it's completely different. Uh, You know, I think we should always recognize that democracy is a fragile thing. Uh, You know, the ancient Athenians were not able to sustain it for more than two centuries. Uh, The Roman Republic, you know, came to an end. You know, this is a decade that will witness the 250th anniversary of the founding of the United States of America. Uh, And You know, it is going to have a long and and bright future only if we do what the people who came before us did and stand up and at times even sacrifice what needs to be sacrificed in terms of our personal lives in order to ensure that democracy is protected. Now, in the world today, technology companies are on the front lines of the defense of democracy. Um, whether it's protecting candidates or campaigns or academics or think tanks or voters and voting roles in the fundamental democratic process, we better do our job well. Um, If we don't do our job well, I think it becomes almost impossible for governments or others to make up for our deficiencies. Um, So I think we're doing better. I think there's many hard questions in our future um, but I think more than anything, we just have to be absolutely committed to the protection of democracy. There are 76 democratic nations in the world. Um, 47% of the world's people live in it. That's 3.7 billion people. It is more people than have ever lived in the democratic societies than in the history of humanity. But it's as fragile as ever. And it will therefore persevere only as long as we are committed to its
1: preservation. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Well, this has been fantastic. I've been told that- We're out of time and I have a call. <laughs> that, that you have a call. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, you're a very busy person. The fact that you took this time out, uh, I, I greatly appreciate. Um, so thank you very much.